Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Hi there. I'm Yvonne Moonkun, TMA's Quality Practice Management Consultant and regular contributor to TMA Practice Well podcast. I have spent the entirety of my adult life in healthcare as a registered nurse, counselor, and now a quality consultant with TMA. I am passionate about facilitating a healthy Texas by supporting the physicians who live and serve the communities throughout our amazing state. I hope you find inspiration and guidance in this episode. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit TexMed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. The content of CME to go podcasts do not relate to any product of a commercial interest. Therefore, there are no relevant financial relationships to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Value-Based Care podcast. This is the second podcast in our Value-Based Care series, the first of which, entitled Fundamentals of Value-Based Care, covered a lot of the terminology associated with Value-Based Care, or VBC for short, and just some basic information. Today, we will cover the business of Value-Based Care. In other words, how does value or quality metrics uh, translate into actual revenue? As an introduction, I would like to start by covering healthcare spending in the United States. Many of you have probably heard that the current fee-for-service system and rate of inflation is not sustainable, but that feels a bit nebulous. So I'm going to go over a few healthcare spending numbers and how we compare with other developed countries simply to highlight how and why we are having this conversation, essentially what has brought us to this point. The United States has the third highest percentage of health expenditure percent of gross domestic product than any other country in the world at 16.89%. There are only two countries with a higher percentage. The Marshall Islands is at 17.55%, but uh, guess what? They're an associated state of the United States, which means the U.S. provides defense, 
subsidies, and access to U.S.-based agencies. Aid from the U.S. represents a large percentage of the island's um, gross domestic product using the U.S. dollar as its currency. Um, the winner for highest percentage of GDP is Tuvalu, an island in the South Pacific served by one single solitary hospital, and they have a similar incidence of heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and cerebral vascular disease to the United States. Okay, so for some perspective, here are the percentages from other developed nations with similar economies to the U.S. in terms of uh, percentage of GDP. Australia is at 9.28%, Canada at 10.79%, China 5.35%, although they're not quite on par as, as a developed nation, but I include them because they are a leader in the world market. France 11.26%, um, UK at 10%, Germany at 11.43%, Sweden at 10.9%. What is even more telling is the increase in GDP in the United States from 6.9% in 1970 to 17.7% in 2019. Per capita spending in the U.S. in 2018 was the highest in the world at $10,623.85. For perspective, in other developed countries, Australia per capita spending was uh, just above 5000 Canada around 5000 China uh, $501, France was about uh, just below $5,000, UK around $4,300, Germany at uh, about $5,400, Sweden at almost $6,000, and again note the increase in per capita health expenditure uh, in the United States in 1970 uh, was $353, or $1,848 adjusted for 2019 dollars. Um, and now, in 2019, uh, was $11,582. So an increase in 1970 from $1,848 to $11,582 in 2019 per capita spending. Per capita out-of-pocket in the U.S. in 2018 was the third highest in the world at $1,148.32. Switzerland was highest at $2,762. Again, for perspective, other developed countries, Australia at $961, Canada $735, China $179, France $433, UK $721, Germany $692, Sweden $824. Uh, Americans are paying almost two and a half times more in out-of-pocket costs now compared with 1970. A 2017 Commonwealth Fund report compared the health system performance of 11 high-income countries and found that among them, the United States spends far and away the most on health care, but ranks at the bottom for performance as well as for access, uh, equity, and health care outcomes. The 10 other countries studied were Australia, Canada, France, Germany, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom, several of which were included in the stats we just went over. What's more, disease burden in the U.S. is the highest among developed countries. Six in 10 Americans have at least one chronic condition, 
such as high blood pressure, diabetes, mental illness, and four in 10 are managing more than one. A staggering 90% of healthcare dollars spent each year is for people with chronic health conditions. Additionally, an Institute of Medicine report found that waste, including unnecessary or repetitive tests, accounts for more than 30% of all healthcare expenditures. That's more than $910 billion each year. It is clear the U.S. health system needs improvement. Value-based care represents a critical step in that direction. Providers make higher margins on patients with commercial insurance, with approximately 70% of providers' margins coming from commercial outpatient services. Providers make lower margins or lose money on patients where the government is the payer, but the government payer market share is increasing around 1.5% per year, and the profitable commercial outpatient services are most vulnerable to competition. The implication for our physicians include Physicians cannot rely on revenue from commercial contracts to offset losses from patients paid for by the government. This is termed cost shifting. Physicians must find ways to make Medicare and Medicaid work. Physicians must compete to hold on to market share for all payer populations. In 2019, the median Medicare margin nationally decreased 2.2%, while hospital costs rose 2.5% per year. With Medicare as the fastest growing segment of the patient population, many geographies will see their Medicare payer mix increase substantially moving forward, a shift that will further compress margins. Okay, so that is just a cursory look at healthcare spending and issues with sustainability. It is way more complex than that, but this serves as a decent introduction to the necessity for focus on how we create revenue from quality rather than from quantity. First, we will discuss accountable care organizations. A few quick bullet points. Physicians, hospitals, and healthcare providers join voluntarily. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, defines and provides rules for ACOs. With the introduction of the Medicare Shared Savings Program, the number of active ACOs in the U.S. has increased sharply. According to uh, Modern Healthcare, there was just 64 ACOs in the U.S. in 2011. By early 2016, that number had risen to 838 and is certainly uh, greater at, at this point in 2021. Uh, this type of organization covers the entire continuum of care. By bringing providers together under the ACO umbrella, patients will ideally receive more coordinated care with an increased focus on prevention and keeping patients healthy. It can also reduce costs associated with redundant tests and overlapping care. Because ideally the providers under this one umbrella are working and communicating in concert with one another. The ACO share savings and may receive further benefits from payers in the form of bundled payment options and global risk. It's been shown that value-based care models produce better clinical population management results, leading to reduced costs. In September, for example, Premier reported that 75% of ACOs in its Population Health Management Collaborative achieved savings of more than $700 million to their organizations in aggregate over the last five years. And almost half of that 
323.6 million was generated in 2019 alone. Now services are billed like fee-for-service, but value-based care is a, a way to more holistically manage the health of patients and insulate balance sheets, all while ensuring predict predictable revenue to improve margins. Uh, for payers, improving the health of populations lowers costs and allows them to produce more attractive plan designs with lower patient financial responsibility. This win-win scenario supports stronger collaboration between physicians and payers. The key point here, services are billed like fee-for-service, but not reimbursed like fee-for-service. With CMS, ACOs must sign a contract for a certain number of years. For instance, ACOs within uh, CMS, such as the Medicare Chaired Savings Program, must sign a contract for five years. The minimum number of beneficiaries depends on the selected CMS ACO model. Contract length and risk level vary from payer to payer. Commercial ACOs, like their Medicare counterparts, may receive payment on shared savings for a defined population over a period of time. To achieve shared savings, certain quality and performance metrics must be met. The goals of a commercial ACO mirror the goals of the CMS ACOs, so their contracts are structured similarly. In order to achieve shared savings, the, a the ACO must meet agreed-upon quality and performance metrics, as we said, and those savings are calculated and distributed to various parties as specified in the ACO contract, and those can be structured in a variety of ways. An ACO may receive payment on shared savings for a defined population over a specified contract period. Risk scores, for example, are key to calculating a benchmark or capitation rates that reflect the acuity of the population being managed, and therefore are critical to establishing the right global value-based payment budget to model and track financial performance and margin impact. Now, there are a few ACO risk sharing options to consider. It is crucial to have a clear understanding of payment arrangements that align well with your practice. Risk sharing will vary according to the program model. When considering involvement with an ACO, assessing practice readiness is essential. If you are dipping your toe in the pool of value-based care for the first time, you may want to choose a one-sided model. A one-sided model consists of the following. Shared savings allows sharing a percentage of savings when requirements are met, does not assume any downside risk. It allows you to gain experience with population health management in a relatively low-risk environment and it really is the first step in the transition to a two-sided model. Once a practice has some experience in value-based care, transitioning to a two-sided model can potentially result in a higher rate of cost sharing. Facing the prospect of potential loss motivates the ACO to be efficient, control spending, and reduce cost. A two-sided model consists of the following, upside and downside risk, which means you share both in savings and losses, um, which in turn gives the ACO incentive to reduce cost, um, and the ACO may be eligible for a higher sharing rate with a higher performance payment limit, which is to say, the better the performance, the greater the share of savings received.
efficient workflows and care coordination, along with preventative care measures and active care management are necessary to make a two-sided model work successfully. Um, next, we're going to cover clinically integrated networks. These are physician-led groups of independent physicians who come together to identify and improve the quality of their offerings. A clinically integrated network, or CIN, must have physician leadership incorporated into its governance model. Both private and employed physician practices are eligible to form a CIN. Legally, a CIN is a separate legal organization facilitating sanctioned collaboration among physicians. However, the U.S. Department of Justice and Federal Communications Commission have set very stringent requirements for how an acceptable CIN organization can be formed. The three acceptable organization options are Joint Venture Physician Hospital Organization, PHO, Health Systems Subsidiary, and Independent Practice Association, or IPA. A CIN's or, uh, organizational options vary based on shared percentage of profitability between the health system and participating physician or hospital. In Texas, we are more, uh, more familiar with um, IPAs. There are several that are um, uh, growing uh, across the state. So, uh, for instance, the payer or employer contracts directly with the joint venture PHO CIN and the profitability is distributed to the two different organizations. The other two options differ in that the major share of profitability is distributed to one organization over the other. The health system receives the profit in a health system subsidiary CIN, whereas in an independent practice association, the participating physician would profit. There are various reasons for choosing one option over the other, but the most common CIN is the joint venture PHO um, and as I said, in Texas, we have a growing number of IPAs. Whatever legal structure the organization takes, it must be physician-led. Now, a CIN grants the group a safe harbor against antitrust laws to collectively negotiate for better payment rates with insurers. This is the reason it is so important to adhere to the organizational guidelines set forth by the U.S. Department of Justice and Federal Communications Commission. More autonomy is associated with a CIN rather than with a larger ACO. And just to be clear, a CIN is not an ACO, but can be a component of an ACO. CINs share performance, quality, value, and efficiency goals. All CIN members must formally commit to complying with clinical guidelines and working on performance improvement activities. Performance improvement relates to all aspects and overall approach to care, including treatment, quality, accuracy, efficiency, timeliness, outcome, and satisfaction. Documentation is critical. The right technology and tools must be employed in order to gain the cross-continuum visibility necessary to move clinical integration from concept to reality. To provide more coordinated care, data sharing and performance monitoring are required. CINs need visibility across the continuum of care to measure and analyze performance and patient outcomes. A system must be in place to accurately track improvements. The CIN must demonstrate it is improving value, not just using its size to wrangle better rates from payers. 
CINs use data analytics to identify and prove when performance objectives goals are met and use that information to negotiate superior reimbursement rates. In other words, the data demonstrates the superior care your patients are receiving and gives you some negotiating power with the payer for better rates. Now, let's move on to advanced payment models. APMs are the next step toward care transformation following the CMS Quality Payment Program Participation, or QPP, as you may know it. They provide an added incentive payment for high-quality, cost-efficient care. They can apply to a specific clinical condition, care episode, or population. An APM provides payment for covered professional services based on quality measures. Participation in an APM occurs under agreement with CMS. The payment incentives are based on performance at entity level or eligible clinician level, cost utilization, and quality measures. Scoring is done under the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, MIPS, reporting, but different from general MIPS scoring standards. There are several categories of APMs, including accountable care, episode-based payment initiatives, primary care transformation, initiatives focused on the Medicaid and CHIP population, initiatives focused on the Medicare-Medicaid enrollees, initiatives to accelerate the development and testing of new payment and service delivery models, and initiatives to speed the adoption of best practices. Next, an advanced payment model, alternative payment model, um, is again one step beyond um, in that transformation, and these must meet three criteria. One, they must use certified electronic health record technology, CEHRT, um, they must receive payment for covered professional services based on quality measures comparable to those used in the MIPS quality performance category, and either be a medical home model expanded under CMS Innovation Center Authority or bear more than a nominal amount of financial risk for monetary losses. Advanced APMs earn a 5% incentive payment. They're excluded from traditional MIPS reporting if they've achieved uh, threshold levels of payments or patients. Other APM models include Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicare health plans, Medicare Advantage, Medicare Medicaid plans, 1876 cost plans, um, program of all-inclusive care for the elderly or PACE plans, CMS multiplayer, pay, uh, payer, excuse me, of which there are four models, and commercial and private payer arrangements. Now, what about value-based contracting with a commercial third-party payer for a smaller practice? Is that possible? Is it being done? Well, traditionally, value-based programs have been difficult to incorporate into a small practice setting. The high costs associated with taking on seriously ill patients prevent small practices from engaging in high-risk models as a result, uh, for example, Blue Cross has previously geared most of its value-based care payment programs toward practices with 10,000 plus Blue Cross members until this point. Um, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Massachusetts has developed a program in which they make global payments to the practice based on 
number of patients in the practice. The funds are used at the practice's discretion um, and detached from medical billing codes. They include upside risk incentives based on quality measures um, and immediate support payments that are made to the practice when committing to the value-based payment model and that program starts as soon as the contract is signed. This new Blue Cross model builds off of previous value-based care models in order to make it more feasible to fold into small practices. Blue Cross designed the model for practices with 1 to 20,000 Blue Cross members. Um, this is an 18-month pilot and was formed with input from primary care practices. They can use their global budget to hire social workers, health coaches, and case managers to address patient needs in a variety of ways. The flexibility in the plans lets doctors also focus on the social and economic factors that contribute to health and even explore how digital health tools such as coaching, coaching apps or remote patient monitoring um, can be used for managing chronic conditions, um, working alongside or instead of procedures and prescriptions. The contract gives small practices the freedom to care for their patients in the most effective way possible, and the incentive payments give primary care groups the ability to receive significantly more in revenue. Likewise, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina has developed a similar value-based model called Blue Quality Physician Program, or BQPP. The practice receives double-digit fee increase on E&M and preventive E&M codes with achievement of BQPP criteria. This model is designed for primary care practices, including family practice, internal medicine, general practice, pediatrics, and multi-specialty practices. Um, another requirement is that the practice must be patient-centered medical home recognized. That PCMH recognition should come from either NCQA, uh, JCO, or URAC. An electronic health record is required an individual practice website not associated under the patient portal or clinically integrated network is also required. The practice must have 30 attributed Blue Cross North Carolina members. All providers and practitioners must be credentialed through Blue Cross North Carolina. Um, physician leadership is required. Um, provider quality reports are pulled and reviewed monthly. The patient portal must be free for all patients and linked on the practice website. Contracting requirements must be reviewed by the practice. Um, and Blue Cross uh, North Carolina reserves the right to audit BQPP practices from time to time. Um, so, for example, Community Care Physician Network is joining Blue Premier, the value-based care program for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina. Um, in an agreement that offers financial and operational benefits to primary care practices and extends value-based care to members in rural and underserved areas of the state. This agreement took effect on January 1, 2021. Adding Community Care Physician Network to the Blue Premier lineup gives independently owned primary care practices in North Carolina yet another option for participating in value-based care models. As primary care doctors gain access to more resources through Blue Premier, such as performance payments, um, data and analytics, patients benefit from better coordinated care. Plus, more than 200 independent primary care practices are in Blue Premier agreements that help them shift from traditional fee-for-service payments to value-based care.
Now, obviously, we don't have these commercially contracted value-based models available in Texas yet, yet being the operable word. These are uh, these other models that demonstrate the possibility, the, the viability of these models uh, for our independent Texas physicians. Now, as a result of COVID-19, payers are adopting new payment models to support physicians and providers. Payers have been adopting a variety of new payment models to help, um, you know, in the, in the recent months with all the financial difficulties. Some have taken on an advanced claims reimbursement strategy. Um, both public and private payers have engaged in this form of payment, enabling providers to receive some reimbursement upfront. Um, payers have also launched programs to help providers secure funding from sources other than payer partners. For example, Centene started a grant writing program for providers to receive loans through the CARES Act. Some are offering upfront claims payment. Medicare's accelerated and advanced payment program has scarcely been used to provide emergency funding to providers. In fact, CMS has only approved 100 requests in the past five years, but the unprecedented public health crisis created by COVID-19 is leading to an uptick in requests and a wider outpouring of support from the payer industry. Others are offering financial guarantees and contract revisions. On the heels of Medicare, some private payers are also offering their provider partners upfront claims reimbursement to help them shoulder the burden of operating in a COVID-19 world. Blue Shield of California announced on April 6th that it will take uh, it will make up to $200 million in direct support available to its healthcare providers and hospitals through advanced payments and other options such as financing guarantees and contract revisions. And many are accelerating claim payment. On April 7th, United Health Group unveiled its plans to accelerate um, nearly $2 billion in claim reimbursement and support to healthcare providers to address the short-term financial challenges created by COVID-19, or at least considered short-term in April of 2020. Advanced claim reimbursement will be available to the payer's fully insured commercial Medicare Advantage and Medicaid businesses. The payer will also offer up to $125 million in small business loans to clinical operators who are partners with United Health Group's partner company, Optum Health. And while these examples are related to the public health emergency and outside of Texas, they again demonstrate the ability of commercial payers to be flexible and innovative, which is certainly not the first characteristics that we uh, that come to mind when thinking about commercial payers. The fact is, in a value-based model, both physicians and payers are more profitable. When patients remain healthy and avoid devastating exacerbation of chronic conditions, physicians and payers are more profitable and patients feel better and have improved outcomes. So the question then comes to how do you choose a value-based model, a value-based care model that is right for your practice? There are several things to consider. You want to evaluate your practice, prepare your practice, evaluate what is available in your market. There are CMS programs, private payer programs, employer group needs and interest. And then you want to negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. Um, according to the American Medical Association, there are five steps to preparing your practice for value-based care. One, identify your patient population and opportunity. Two, design the care model. Three, partner for success. Four, 
drive appropriate utilization, and five, quantify impact and continuously improve. Step one is critical in the evaluation of the practice and choice of what type of VBC model will be appropriate uh, for your practice. You will need to identify leading health conditions or procedures in your patient population, identify any barriers in the current payment system, identify potential solutions to reduce spending through improved care, um, understand the patient population, including non-clinical factors, to identify patients suitable for programs or APMs, um, define services to be covered, identify those measures of utilization and spending that are under physician control, develop a core set of outcome, outcomes-focused quality measures, including mechanisms for regularly updating quality measures, obtain and analyze data needed to demonstrate financial feasibility for practice, payers, and patients. Identify mechanisms for ensuring adequacy of payment and seek support from other physicians, physician groups, and patients. My last key point relates specifically to the patient. To develop more conscientious healthcare users, plans and healthcare professionals need to provide the information, financial incentives, and decision-making tools to consumers to allow them to make educated healthcare purchasing decisions. Um, according to NRC Health, from the provider's perspective, healthcare consumerism is designed to foster closer communications and cooperation between doctors and their patients, increase patient buy-in and compliance with treatment recommendations, increase patients' knowledge and awareness of lifestyle and wellness practices, focus more on preventive medicine by encouraging healthy activities and habits. Now, just to recap, one, fever service has become unsustainable. Two, COVID-19 has highlighted the fragility of a healthcare economic system reliant upon fever service. Three, the U.S. lags other developed countries on key measures of health and well-being. Four, healthcare consumerism is increasing. And five, practice viability and physician satisfaction are in jeopardy. Although much progress has been made, the United States lags other developed countries, such as the members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, on key measures of health and well-being, including life expectancy, infant mortality, and obesity, despite spending the highest percentage of its gross domestic product on health. Ultimately, the goal, which should be easily agreed upon by both physicians and payers, is to provide better health care and improve patient outcomes while reducing cost and driving efficiencies throughout the healthcare industry. Thank you so very much for your time and attention. To claim CME for today's program, go to www.texmed.org forward slash CMETO. G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you and ask that you like and follow for future episodes. Until then, stay well.